0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back everyone to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, Have a fun one. For you today, someone who haven't seen in many, many years, Steve DeVitkos. Mm-hmm. So Steve and me go way back, and we'll, we'll get into that story at some point, Steve. But uh, to give everyone a background, uh, Steve was the former CEO of Microdia. It was a document management and workflow automation software company. Uh, Steve acquired it in 2014 when he was the founder of uh, Redleaf, which was a private equity firm. And prior to that, Steve worked at uh, CPPIB and I mean of course went to Harvard to get into CPPIB so I got to you know we'll, we'll talk about education at some point uh, in, in this podcast so so Steve thank you so much for uh, for joining me really appreciate it yeah it's great to
1: be here thanks for having me
0: so Steve like I said we go back quite a few years but let's go back even further before we even touch on education and and uh, you know Microdia and the great success that that was Love to hear about you know what got you to this point. I kind of always start in, in, in that direction. I'm kind of obsessed with the rearing of the entrepreneurial spirit and and what that childhood looked like and what the parents looked like. So maybe you can just give us a brief overview of of what that uh, what that journey was for you.
1: Yeah, I would say my first exposure to the world of entrepreneurship came in an, in an interesting way uh, when I was quite young. Both my parents uh, worked for the government in a very non entrepreneurial context and. When I was you know, roughly 10 years old or so. My dad got laid off from his job uh, working for the government. And in contemplating his next move, he decided to hang out a shingle and uh, become a sole proprietor running his own business. And fast forward to today, he's still working as a sole proprietor, at largely working out of our family's home. And so that was really my first exposure to entrepreneurship. I would say it's a less perhaps traditional view of entrepreneurship. But I think uh, the the best definition of entrepreneurship that I've ever heard is the relentless pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. And so that means that to be an entrepreneur, you don't have to be funded by venture capital. You don't have to have a startup. You don't have to employ hundreds of people. I, I think that definition kind of captures it well. And so I saw my dad, he only ate what he killed, so to speak, and there were benefits and flexibility to his role as an entrepreneur. He could drive me to school and pick me up. He could take me to hockey practice. But as all entrepreneurs know, that freedom and flexibility comes at a price. Uh, The weight of the world, you know, resides on your shoulders. You got to make payroll. And the only, uh, like I said, you can only eat what you kill. And so that was my first exposure to um, what entrepreneurship could be. And was it a tough journey for him or or were you shielded from that journey? I think he did a really good job in shielding me. My parents generally do a pretty good job of shielding their children from their worries and their concerns. But there were times certainly when you could kind of tell that there were worries and uncertainties and concerns. And I think, you know, he, he also had worries and uncertainties and concerns in a government job, but they were just very different. And so you know, a lot of the things that I say to people who are considering taking the entrepreneurial plunge these days is everything has a price, right? The stability, the regularity, the predictability that you probably get at your current salary job, that provides you with certain benefits, but it has a price. The flexibility, the autonomy, the independence, the freedom that entrepreneurship presents you with, that's all great, but that has a price too. We need to be really thoughtful about your willingness and ability to to pay those prices.
0: You know, it's interesting you mentioned freedom as an entrepreneur because I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs that would say the exact opposite, that they're they're a slave to the, uh, you know, to, 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 to the business and that freedom Maybe the nine to five job where you can actually go home and uh, and escape it. Yeah, you know that that's a it's a it's a romantic way of, of 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 looking at entrepreneurship. Why why do you view entrepreneurship through the lens of freedom? I do too, just so you know. But I want to challenge <laughs> you just to delve a little deeper. Yeah.
1: I, I think it depends on how one defines and thinks about freedom. So for me, I like the flexibility where if I have to pick up my daughter from daycare at three thirty p.m., I can do that without telling anybody, without even thinking about it. Uh, If there's a conference that I want to go to or a day that I want to take off, I can just do that. Right. So that is the type of freedom that it, uh, I think the entrepreneurial journey provides you. But again, that freedom comes at a pretty substantial price. And I would say uh, many entrepreneurs, myself included, uh, feel like they are kind of a slave to their business. But, you know, that, that is a symptom right? At the root of that symptom could be hundreds of different things. It could be uh, inability to delegate. It could be lack of a properly functioning management team. It could be many other factors. And so I think some entrepreneurs, although they consider themselves entrepreneurs, if you don't manage your business correctly, what you actually have is a job. Whereas uh, other entrepreneurs who perhaps are more thoughtful about what they do and how they do it and with whom, they have a business. And just because you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean that you don't just have a regular job. Um, those that do often find themselves as being kind of slaves to their business. And certainly in my first handful of years as a CEO, I would absolutely describe myself in that camp. But after enough mistakes and lessons, eventually I started to transition towards the other camp. So going back,
0: you're 10 years old, your father starts a business, your mother's still working for the government, I imagine. Yep. You land up going and doing your undergrad, and you go into this. I guess what would be considered a very stereotypical path of high achievers of yep. top business school, you know, top IB. That's not a traditional path for where you landed up. So, so talk yeah. to me about, 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 why you decided to, to, to go that, you know, the educational route. And, and was it always with this entrepreneurial uh, desire in mind or
1: did that come later? I think the entrepreneurial desire came a little bit later. It came after I gained sufficient exposure to a more traditional path. I think as type A overachievers, I'm sure that probably describes many of your listeners, certainly describes myself and might even describe you. It's very easy to simply take the next step forward because we're so used to always trying to achieve progress and always trying to achieve that next thing and climb that next hill. And when you're following a traditional career path, it's very linear. You see exactly which hill is in front of you and you know exactly which hill you want to climb next. But will it's its funny you ask. I'll actually never forget the moment where I decided that I want to be an entrepreneur. And usually it doesn't really kind of come down to a singular moment. So no, that, that's, a, that's a rare thing to hear. It's a very rare thing. Maybe the better way to put it is... I remember the moment where I decided that I didn't want to stay in the path that I was in. So this is when I was working in private equity. It was a late night, 10 or 11 PM, and I was sitting next to a colleague of mine. And at the time we were at essentially identical stages in our careers. And I remember looking at him and you could tell that this is what he was born to do. He loved every minute of it. He would read annual reports when he went home. He has you know, all the power to him. He found what he was put on this earth to do. And I knew that that was not at all how I felt about that job. Candidly, coming out of undergrad, in all of my youthful wisdom, I just went for the highest paying job I could and the one that I thought high achievers should go for. That, that was the extent of the thought that I put into it. And though him and I were at the same stage in our career at that time, I remember thinking to myself, hey, 5, 10 years from now, this guy is going to be absolutely running circles around me because he has found exactly what he was put on this earth to do this is clearly not what I was put on this earth to do. So I need to do some more exploration. And candidly, that's what led me to go to business school uh, to take, as silly as this might sound, to take two years to think about what I should be doing as much as anything else. So to, that's so interesting. I, this, this concept of
0: high achievers are are, are put in a position where they, where they do kind of just take the next step. I, I've never thought about it that way. What do you think those individuals could be doing along the way to ensure that they don't fall into the path that they were quote unquote supposed to take and you know ensure that they're layering on their passion. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I got into medical school and in hindsight, that was ridiculous, but I did well in school. I got into, uh, you know, did a degree in genetics and that was the natural next step was to go to medical school. Such a ridiculous idea for someone, who, anyone who actually knows me. But I fell into that trap and thank goodness, you know, at the last second, uh, you know, didn't fall completely in. But that was, that was a stroke of luck from, from, for, for me and actually a bit yeah. of inter- intervention from my, from my parents. But would you suggest that, that those sorts of
1: individuals do something like take a break, quote unquote, by going to do an MBA? I mean, I don't think it has to be that extreme, but I think I could pull some kind of common threads out. So the first I would say is that as human beings, we all need to realize that we are on autopilot most of the time. And it's amazing to understand and study uh, and observe the extent to which we are likely all on autopilot. It's much more so than I think we'd all care to admit And when you are on autopilot, one of the kind of cognitive biases that you um, fall into is you simply just take the next step and you see what hill is immediately in front of you and you start climbing it. I think the idea of going to business school for two years or, you know, going to India and sitting in a cave and meditating for two years, you don't have to go that extreme. I, I would say the concept that I think it was helpful for me is just this entire concept of being deliberate right don't just let life happen to you because if you do you'll just be a, a victim to the circumstances that happen to present themselves in your life at any given time most of which are completely outside of your control so how do you be deliberate a couple things that i did to inform my next step because after i sold my company it's been over a year since i've worked and i've gone through this exercise recently to figure out what i want to do next so the first thing that I did is I uh, codified my personal core values, right? So what uniquely defines me and what is uniquely important to me as a person. And then I can use that as a form of like decision criteria against which I can compare possible career alternatives. The next thing I did is um, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, he came up with this, uh, the hedgehog concept that successful companies follows, but there's a personal corollary to that. So it's, it's essentially three interlapping uh, circles what am i uniquely good at doing what do i especially enjoy doing and how can i get paid for it right so going through that exercise was another one another you know exercise that is a bit you know a bit more nebulous but ultimately i think is is worth trying to strive for is trying to define your why like what is your purpose why do you do what you do uh, and for me my my why was to use my experience as a ceo and an entrepreneur to help others in a way that i was not helped when i was a ceo and an entrepreneur And then another exercise that I went through, again, you know, kind of just thinking out loud, was the funeral exercise. So I sat down and I wrote down, what do I want people to say about me at my funeral? And when you put all these exercises together, it almost acts as a set of criteria against which you can evaluate different alternatives. And if you're working in a job right now and you're feeling a little bit stagnant, it's worth going through some of these exercises and compare the extent to which your current job. Meets your criteria, and if it doesn't, then it might be time for a change. Uh, and, and then the last thing I would say is that, you know, in my experience, particularly in business school, people were so worried about building a resume. And what I never understood, especially going to a school like Harvard, I said, guys, you know, we all just paid one hundred fifty thousand dollars in tuition for the best insurance policy that we're ever going to get. Right? We could fail at five different things. And if they all fail, we'll just go get a normal job. So one of the speakers who came to campus one time said something interesting. He said, "Don't try to build a resume; just try to build an interesting life." Um, and I think that's just a really interesting way to think about it. So you know, tying all that together, it's one word: deliberate. Be deliberate. Don't be on autopilot because that's all of our natural inclinations.
0: So. so- that's really interesting and uh i'm gonna speak to you afterwards to get the details of those exercises so that we can put it in the in your the bio underneath the uh, the podcast this concept of autopilot i use this nature versus nurture a lot and and i speak a lot about how we are far more pre-programmed than we wish to admit question for you is does everyone have the same ability in your opinion. To remove themselves from being in autopilot. Cause I don't think that they do. I think that for whatever reason, you have a genetic component that allows you to potentially get off the, uh, you know, the escalator and, and think about the fact that you are on autopilot. I think a lot of people like ignorance is bliss. So what's your view on that? Because I also take it a step further. People always ask me, can anyone be an entrepreneur? And I say, absolutely not. And not only can anyone not be an entrepreneur, but. Many people should not be an entrepreneur. What's your view? Can 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 you be whatever you want to be, or 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 do you also subscribe to this idea that there is a lot more pre-programming than one would like to admit?
1: I would say I agree and disagree with you. So the part that I agree with is uh, we are all you know very pre-programmed in certain ways as a result of evolution, right? That's that's a pretty inescapable fact the thing that i would push back on is you know your disposition to be an entrepreneur versus my disposition to be an entrepreneur or pardon me your disposition to be deliberate versus mine i don't think it matters uh to be honest your predisposition to be deliberate about how you spend your time doesn't matter to me nor does my predisposition matter to you i think comparing ourselves and our willingness and ability to be thoughtful and deliberate about how we spend our time it's irrelevant to compare ourselves to others all we need to do is be better than we used to be right so if i was 100 on autopilot all i worry about is an improvement can i be 90 percent on autopilot next month and 80 percent on autopilot the month after because any degree of improvement is worth that time and that thoughtfulness that you devote to that exercise so i think everybody has the ability to be deliberate but why are more people deliver it because it's hard and it's time consuming. Uh, Like anything, what you get out of it is what you put into it. And to put it, put yourself into it, you know, I've engaged in a lot of practices that when I was a CEO, I didn't do. So meditation, journaling, therapy, these are all things that I do now that I would recommend to all entrepreneurs and CEOs. And they've helped me slow down and, you know, get off the uh, escalator to use your words uh, but a lot of people just aren't willing to put in the time to to do those things, and unfortunately, they suffer as a result. And, and usually, they come to the realization too late. Right, right. Like another question that I ask entrepreneurs is: it's a little bit morbid, but you know, when you're on your deathbed, what are you more likely to regret? Are you more likely to regret having tried something and failed, or are you more likely to regret never trying at all? Right. And so, you know, these are the things that you try to get perspective on because if you don't think about it deliberately. You know, don't look now, but 50 years are going to pass. And one day you're going to wake up and say, oh, I wish I was a bit more thoughtful. You speak about that process
0: being time consuming, which I agree with. You also speak about it being hard. What's hard about it?
1: You know what? Maybe hard isn't the right word. I don't know if it's hard as no, much I, as I it think it is, is the right
0: word. And, and I'm, I'm kind of setting you up because I, I think that this personal introspection is extremely difficult and that you could find things about yourself that you really don't like or that you know, make you feel a little uncomfortable so i think that people underestimate how much that personal introspection can can mess with your ego and can mess with uh, you know the way you look at yourself
1: yeah yeah i think that's probably fair i think you know for me going through these exercises as recently as i did to try to figure out what i want my next career step to be it didn't just happen overnight right like i've been in therapy for four or five years i've been meditating for two, three years. I've been journaling for two, three years. I've been part of the Entrepreneurs Organization, which effectively amounts to group therapy. Uh, YPO is a similar group for seven, eight, nine years. So I think I've kind of been priming myself to be able to go through these exercises, you know, with relative ease. Uh, But it is difficult to you know slam on the brakes uh sit down at a desk for a couple hours and come to these realizations it it does take some more time and some more introspection and a willingness to be vulnerable a willingness to understand what you're good at what you're not good at uh what some of your flaws might be so it's it's an investment in yourself but ultimately obviously i think it's an investment worth making yeah totally let's switch gears
0: you leave the the stability of of a great job and you go out to do what a lot of people dream about doing, and buying a company and, and seeing what you know you could do about it, and and how you could help uh, that that business grow. You landed on Microdia. For those that don't know what Microdia is, uh, if you can give just a brief kind of overview, and and then I want to dive into why that business. Obviously, is you know in, in hindsight it was a it was a great success, but what was it that you saw that maybe others didn't?
1: Yeah. So the company. We made document management and process automation software for trucking companies. Document management, you can think of it as a very sophisticated digital filing cabinet. Process automation basically means using software to do a better, faster, and cheaper job than humans can at routine back office processes like paying invoices, uh, approving payables, paying your employees, things like that. The title page that I would put on why that business is there was enough right with it and there was enough wrong with it. So start with enough right with it i was a rookie ceo Uh, i had never managed as much as a secretary before buying this company of 33 employees at the time Uh, so there needed to be enough kind of stability in the operating model such that i could make rookie ceo mistakes without tanking the business so the company had no customer concentration i think you know our top customer represented less than five percent of annual revenue We had hundreds of customers. Uh, Roughly 40% of our revenue was recurring in nature. Our churn rate was less than 5%. We had a very sophisticated product used by many large and small companies. So, you know, all of this is to say that I knew that if I went in there and made a bunch of mistakes in the first year, the business wasn't going to disappear. In the enough wrong with it bucket, it was a small business and it was run by its original founder who founded the business in the mid 90s. Uh, he was in his 70s at the time and wanted to move on to the next phase of his life. And it exhibited many characteristics that a lot of businesses of that size tend to exhibit. So I would say it said yes to far too many things. It lacked focus. Uh, it underinvested in tools and people and processes. It didn't have a management team. It spread itself too thin from a resourcing perspective. And, and on and on. This is to say nothing kind of unkind or detrimental to my predecessors. They built a fantastic business. They built a business that was good enough for me to stake my entire personal reputation on it, and certainly the vast majority of my career thus far. So it had enough right with it that I knew I could be a rookie CEO and make rookie CEO mistakes, but had enough wrong with it such that I knew that I could actually make some improvements and, and generate some value. So you go from not even managing
0: a secretary managing a team of 33 and then four consecutive years uh, being amongst Canada's best places to work as well as doubling revenue in five years you clearly learned a few things about leadership and management so tell us about the rookie mistakes you made and and what you learned along the way for those that that want to be better leaders Uh, you know those are pretty impressive statistics that I just
1: uh mentioned yeah yeah I mean Man, if you want me to go through all my mistakes, like we might need to extend this podcast by like four hours because I got I got a lot of them. But if I had to choose a couple, I think the first would be hiring. Hiring is a really hard thing to do. My personal bias is that as the CEO of a company, if you're batting, if you're 50-50 with respect to your senior management team hires, you're doing pretty well. Um, so I made a lot of bad hires early on and I had to correct those hires. Um, one in particular, fantastically talented person but I hired them uh, from a very, very large company. I needed them to manage individual contributors, but they were used to managing managers. They were coming to my company where when you call any given participant in our industry, they don't necessarily know who you are, but he came from a company where everybody knew who he was. and. For those reasons and others, uh, a very, very talented person just was not a fit uh, for the job that needed to be done in the company uh, that it needed to be done in. And unfortunately, I made basically that same hiring mistake more than a few times. Um, And I learned from those mistakes and I learned about the concept of kind of hiring slow and firing fast and how to correct mistakes and the fact that you should be comfortable making mistakes uh, as a CEO because hiring mistakes are are, uh, pretty common. I think there were instances where I wasn't decisive enough as a CEO. I think in retrospect, there's a lot of decisions that I faced early in my tenure that I kept kind of delaying for candidly fear of making the wrong decision. I think I waited, I waited to have all of the information that I needed to make decisions. And what I didn't realize as a rookie CEO is. If you find yourself in a situation where you have all of the necessary information, you're almost certainly too late in making the decision and you have to get comfortable making decisions with incomplete information. I tried to do everything myself. Uh, I spread myself far too thin. uh, And as a result, I became the bottleneck to the company's growth, which is kind of antithetical to what I was trying to do. And on and on, like I said, there was a lot of mistakes. But um, as a rookie CEO, I mean, one quote that I love from Ben Horowitz, who wrote The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which I think is one of the only books that I've ever read that actually describes what being a CEO is really like, he said, uh, the only way to learn how to be a CEO is to be a CEO. Uh, And I I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly right. No school is going to prepare you to do it. But so, so
0: you obviously did a few things right along the way. I mean... You mentioned the the 50-50 of bad hires. How do you do that? And then land up with a hundred percent glass door rating. What did you do on the back end of those bad hires that led it to not be, you know, as bad as it probably could have been? Because I think all of us have had situations where, you know, bad hires end poorly.
1: Yeah, I would say the best thing that you can do when you make a bad hire, and potentially you can broaden this to any mistake that you make as a leader, is two things. One, be honest about it. Don't pretend like you didn't make a mistake. People are smart and people can see if you've made a mistake and hiding from that fact serves nobody including you. Second, fix the mistake quickly. I think the biggest mistake that most people make as it relates to hiring senior managers is they don't fix mistakes fast enough. So, you know, one of my mentors said to me, hey, when you make a senior management team hire and you start to think that you've made a mistake, uh, he or she should be gone within three months. And then the next time you make a mistake, they should be gone within two months. And then the next time you make a mistake, they should be gone in a month. Next time you make a mistake, they should be gone in two weeks. He said that to suggest that you should be getting better and, and you do just with enough exposure uh, of recognizing hiring mistakes and fixing them quickly. I think the reality that underpins all of that is that you're gonna make hiring mistakes, so you might as well get comfortable with that. And so I got better at fixing those mistakes. I think publicly, I wasn't afraid to admit mistakes while still being respectful of the departing person. You certainly don't want to speak negatively of people. Ultimately, the mistake was yours, not not theirs. I think ultimately fixing those mistakes and making better hires certainly helped. And you know, one of the other lessons that quickly comes to mind as it relates to hiring, you know, someone told me, when you're looking to hire somebody, there's only two possible answers, hell yes or no. And there's nothing in between. Uh, and if you don't have your hell yes, then the answer is no. Uh, and so I waited until I found my hell yes candidate for all the management team slots that I needed to fix. And- And you still get a 50% wrong, even with the hell yeses. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think my batting average went up a little bit, but it's, it still was not a thousand. Yeah.
0: You're in a very interesting situation where you had this kind of dream to leave the corporate world and go and buy a business, and now you've exited that business. My question for you is, in hindsight, how did the experience compare to what you thought it was going to be?
1: Mm, Yeah. Look, I think being an entrepreneur, being a CEO, was the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. It also turned out to be one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my entire life. And certainly one of the most educational things that I've ever done. I think the amount that I know and understand and appreciate about investing in and running businesses today, I mean, dwarfs by many multiples, you know, what I understood to be true 10 years ago when I started along this this path. I would say some of the most uh, profound lessons for me actually aren't business-related. It has to do with the concept of entrepreneurship you know, being more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, Certainly, when I first took over the business, I put so much pressure on myself. I had investors. I had to give them their returns. I had 99% of my net worth, probably 100% of my net worth, tied up in some illiquid private company for which there was no readily accessible market. As a type A overachiever, the fear of failure was hugely high for me. And so I think where I really stumbled was on recognizing that Entrepreneurship is a marathon and not a sprint, and one must act accordingly. So my life was very unbalanced. I neglected self-care. I neglected family. I neglected friends. I neglected pursuits outside of work. And I rationalized this to myself, all in the spirit of achievement and progress and growth. But what I failed to realize is that, like, like any machine, like our body needs to, our bodies and our minds need to recharge and refuel and relax and rejuvenate. And I completely ignored that. And ultimately that proved to be a business detriment to me, uh, in addition to a personal detriment. And so now as I kind of turn the page on my career from a CEO to someone who wants to help CEOs and entrepreneurs. You know, I I spend probably half my time talking about business, you know, how to build a sales team, how to hire, how to go to market, et cetera, how to incent. But I spend 50%, maybe even more than 50%, just working with the person as an individual, because I think a CEO's health, physical and mental, ultimately diffuses down to her organization. I think the mood of the leader directly impacts the mood of the team. And I think, you know, CEO can be a lonely journey. In fact, it almost... Certainly is, uh, or or at least will be, and there are support mechanisms out there should you choose to uh, pursue them. So, for me, the uh, as I look back at the entire journey, a lot of my most meaningful lessons were actually not business related; they were personal in nature. But of course, as a CEO, your personal problems and opportunities turn into business problems and opportunities. I couldn't agree more with you. You know, for me, I've gone through a radical transformation over the last couple
0: of years, focusing on health. You know dropped almost 100 pounds and uh it's made me a better person but by proxy of that a a better ceo you know you've mentioned meditation more than once on uh on the podcast how important has that focus on 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 health mind and body been uh for you because you you obviously said that you neglected it you know what's that journey look like for you and 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 what would you say to other entrepreneurs that are that are listening to this because i don't like sounding too preachy about how important health is right because you 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 can can go down the path of getting real preachy real quick when you're into it the way that i am as an example yeah but
1: uh you know so so you preach for me how about that steve yeah i can (laughs) do that i'll take the bullet i'll take the bullet for you Yeah. You know, look, it's, this is something near and dear to my heart. I started a blog called in the trenches, uh, which is also a podcast where I talk, you know, most half of my content is about managing yourself as opposed to managing your business and buying businesses and things like that. Uh, Look, it's been hugely important. The, I wish that there was a different catalyst for me to start, for me to have started to care about these things. So the catalyst was in 2020, You know, after COVID started and after a bunch of stuff happened, I got diagnosed with depression Um, and that was that was a rock my world type of moment, because given my life up until that point, I had never in a million years thought that I would be the guy who would be diagnosed with something like that, like never in a million years. Uh, But it it happened. And why did it happen is because I neglected balance and self-care for too long. And so, in speaking to a fellow CEO about this, he used a great analogy. He said, uh, "When you're jumping out of the plane, there's there's two wrong times to pull a parachute. Don't pull a parachute when you're 10 feet from the plane, and don't pull a parachute when you're 10 feet from the ground, because uh, the 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 latter will be too late. And unfortunately, I waited until I was 10 feet from the ground to pull the parachute." And so, what I do with CEOs now is we talk about things that work for them. And the things that work for me don't necessarily work for them. Everyone's got their own stuff. But for me, stuff like physical exercise, um, diet, uh, journaling, meditation, therapy, even things, you know, doing nice things for other people without expecting anything in return, um, spending time outdoors, these are all things that just kind of happen to work for me. I wish I could talk to my you know, 20-something-year-old self and say, hey, by the way, you have to start doing this now. And if you tell me that, hey, I don't have time to do that, or I can't afford to do that, my response is, you can't afford not to. And so the analogy that I often use is, you know, anytime that you put the interests of others before your own, and as a CEO and entrepreneur, you have to do that many times, but I, I think of it as an accumulating piece of debt. And for every opportunity where you don't invest in your own personal rejuvenation, relaxation, re energizing uh, that debt continues to compound. And every time that you do invest in those things, you're making a principal payment towards that debt. But like with any piece of debt, it has a due date. And one day your debt's going to come due whether you like it or not. And when it does, you want to make sure that you've adequately paid down the principal, so to speak. Hopefully this is resonating with the finance folks listening to this. But yeah, that's the way that I think about it. And ultimately, I got by for 7 years making interest only payments on my debt and then one day the universe decided that my debt was due and I was completely unprepared. Yeah, you know, you
0: speak about telling your 20 something year old self these things and and the unfortunate thing and I tell people this all the time is that unfortunately lessons have to be learned.
1: Yeah, youth yeah, youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And, and like you I've been through a very similar story. And I think there's a lot of us that have. So I appreciate you sharing that. You mentioned you went through all these exercises and to decide what you want to do next. And it sounds to me like you've landed on on helping other CEOs. Talk to us a little bit about what you're up to and and how people can follow along in your journey.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, after a lot of introspection, deliberate in nature, obviously, Uh, I've decided to raise a small fund. And the purpose of that fund is to invest in small and medium-sized businesses uh, operating across North America. And in kind of choosing that, I started with what's my why, right? And my why was how do I help improve the personal and professional lives of entrepreneurs and CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses? And you know, I considered, should I be a CEO coach? Should I be a consultant? Should I be a you know, kind of a professional board member. I don't think any of those things presented the potential impact that being an investor does because as an investor, you're right there in the trenches with the CEO and it also provides the economic engine for me to, you know, allow myself to to play that role. And so my focus is on investing in, you know, quite small businesses generally under the radar of most institutional capital in North America and just working with world-class entrepreneurs and just helping them in any way that i can because as you know entrepreneurship is a lonely journey it's a hard journey and you know guys like us we've got the blood and the bruises and the tears and the sweat and if we could use that to help other people you know that's that feels like a pretty good way to spend my time so that's what i'll be doing i'll be uh, you know starting my fundraising in the next couple of weeks here and I uh, hope to get that wrapped up and just you know, start working with some CEOs and be helpful however I can.
0: And Steve, I'm sure there's a lot of people that that message resonates with. What's the best way they can get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, best place to get in touch with me is at inthetrenches.net. As I mentioned, I started a blog and podcast exclusively dedicated to entrepreneurs and CEOs, You know, very similar to this one, both of which can be found at inthetrenches.net. And uh, it should be very easy to contact me from there. Awesome. Well, Steve,
0: thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.